Welcome to Slated to Discuss, a podcast exploring trends, developments, and issues shaping the world of real estate and infrastructure. Hosted by Slate Asset Management, a global real asset investor and manager, this podcast will feature original, forward-thinking, and even unconventional perspectives from experts and trailblazers, interviewed by a rotation of Slate leaders. Head to slateam.com where you can subscribe to the Slated to Discuss podcast on your favorite platform, learn more about Slate's real estate, infrastructure, and securities capabilities, and discuss any of the ideas you hear on today's episode. Now over to your host, Bojana Jankowska, Managing Director and Head of ESG at Slate. Welcome to Slated to Discuss. I'm your host, Bojana Jankowska. In this episode, we will be inviting three leading industry experts into the discussion to explore how innovative sustainable architecture is playing a role in the transition towards a low carbon, climate resilient and resource efficient built environment. Joining us today are Stephen Painter, global leader of building transformation and adaptive reuse at Gensler, Weston Walker, design principal and partner at Studio Gang, and Todd Douglas, senior landscape architect at Janet Rosenberg and Studio. We'll be delving into how sustainability-driven architectural design concepts can create spaces that connect us to nature. The roadblocks architects face when striving to implement sustainable design and the ingenious approaches they deploy to overcome them and what is next on the horizon. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody. This is now our second podcast of Slated to Discuss. We've got a great lineup of guests here with us today. We've got Stephen Painter from Gensler. We've got Todd Douglas from JR Studios. And we've got Wes Walker from Studio Gang. All very much experts in the area And we know that they've been doing a lot of really exciting things in the area of ESG and sustainable design, which is what the main topic of this podcast is about. We've got some interesting discussion points to go through today with all of our guests. So let's get started. Hi, guys. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for inviting us on. Great to have you. Okay. so, So what we've been focusing on at Slate is very much thinking about the impact of sustainability on design developments. It's something that has a lot of potential, particularly when it comes to changing cities and communities. And with the growing focus on sustainability and climate change, this is a very pertinent topic at the moment. So when we think about architecture, all of you have obviously got architectural roots in some shape or form. How, in your view, does sustainable architecture differ from conventional architecture? And what are some key principles that underpin sustainable building design? Wes, why don't you have a go at this one? Sure. Start by saying that our hope is that sustainable architecture does become conventional architecture. And and we all recognize the need to think about the built environment in a different way. And I think that if we think about conventional architecture maybe as driven by an immediate need or an immediate function that's going to serve a specific user or user group and serve a specific commercial consideration, perhaps the desire to create economic value. When we think about sustainable architecture, we want to strive to create deeper value. And that's value that could be sustained and could be shared. So I think this design approach, you could think about it as driven more by ecological and social factors 
and looking to create beneficial relationships and positive impacts on the spaces and resources that we all share, the climate and our planet and our communities being primary among them. And so our approach, we tend to think of it as ecological, focused on relationships between individuals, between communities, and between all of us and the planet we share. So we're looking to create value in that realm beyond just the more direct economic or direct programmatic value. Yeah, I mean, that's a really sustainable way of thinking about it. And also, the one thing to start thinking about is what we do today. And given the lifespan of buildings, these are long-term assets. These are long-term legacies that we're building today to last for many, many years to come. So looking out into the future, the long-term consideration is really important for buildings. So looking out into the future, how do you think sustainable architecture accounts for adaptability and resilience in the face of climate change, which is such a big topic at the moment and will continue to be an important topic in the future? And how do you see that evolving in terms of environmental challenges that it presents? Todd, what about your perspective on this with the resilience work that you've been doing? For sure. Yeah. I mean, as landscape architects, I think we're always kind of building for the future. Um, we deal in a medium that often has a lifespan that's organic material that lives and it grows and it changes and it can live for many decades. And we're trying to anticipate the conditions in which it's going to exist. Specifically with climate change, we're seeing more severe storms, we're seeing temperature changes, and we're seeing more unpredictability. So we're already kind of trying to build that in to our process and look at things like you know, hardiness zones, even today, when we build in the urban environment, we'll kind of adjust our plant palette based on the hardiness zone. And as we go up in a building, the hardiness zone will actually also kind of increase. So we change the material that goes up. But now we're looking at that happening everywhere. So we'll be anticipating that and kind of trying to adapt our process going forward. So we always try to anticipate, I think, what's coming. And now we're just trying to add in more unpredictability or be prepared for this kind of range of conditions that we see happening. That's really interesting insight. And with regards to climate resilience, are you using any kind of future climate planning models to help you understand how that should overlap with your design considerations? So in a way, yes. I mean, I think the urban environment has always been harsh for plant materials. And so I mentioned things like plant hardiness zones, but of course, the urban conditions are very different than the naturalized conditions in which these hardiness zones are kind of based on. So we've already been adapting our approach to where we're working. And then now we are looking at the research coming out about what changes are anticipated and trying to incorporate that into our decision-making process. Okay, great. And in terms of looking at the intersection between design challenges, sustainability, looking out into the future, and Wes alluded to this in his comments, the financial considerations element of all of this, you know, sustainability, given we're so early on in this stage, relatively early on, there will be some financial considerations to take into account. So what would be good to know is often they do play an important role and seem to be and always are the top of everybody's considerations when it comes to planning for a project. How does that dovetail into decision-making for construction projects, particularly when you want to incorporate sustainable architecture principles 
And how do you see that striking a balance between cost effectiveness and long-term environmental and sustainability benefits? Steve? For me, it's really about understanding what the client's drivers are. And as you say, quite often that is cost, but cost means different things to different clients. I worked on a lot of schools and P3 buildings when I was in the UK, and their idea of cost was a 25-year time frame. So the actual construction cost was less than half of what their real cost was. That led them to integrating really sustainable energy-saving things into the buildings. It also led them to make decisions, and one that always kind of comes to mind is they decided on these school projects to spend significantly more on door frames and hinges and door handles than they would normally, so they didn't have to replace them. Now, that was purely a financial decision, but it has a great sustainability benefit too of not creating something for the short term that you're then going to throw away in five years or whatever. So sometimes the economics can really support the sustainable decisions. In more of the short-term kind of developer or residential projects where their outlook is selling the building in two years or five years or, or whatever, it's a slightly different challenge. And when it comes to that, what we've been doing to try and really integrate sustainability on all of our projects is doing the, the things that cost nothing first. And when you talk about sustainability having an add-on cost, it's really when you introduce those add-on, tack-on things that are kind of a little bit greenwashy. So if you want to really make a difference on a building, first thing to do is make it airtight. Don't let all of that heat and cooling go out. Making a building airtight is actually cheaper than making a building that isn't. You just have to detail it more simply. You make sure the vapor barriers can get in there in the right location. And as you start to do that and you refine the way you've designed it, it will generally make it cheaper because you're getting rid of some of the superfluous stuff. The same with the way we insulate buildings, the same with the way we cut down cold bridges. None of those things cost anything. They genuinely don't. So if it's a client who has a bit of a short-term view or is not as focused on sustainability, that's the type of stuff that we've been integrating. If I make the vapor barrier continuous and I really get rid of any cold bridges, the client doesn't know, but they're getting a better product at the end and we're creating a better product for ourselves as well. So always try and detach it from front end or line item cost. You know, do the right project, focus on what is going to resonate well with your client, and then figure out where you can sneak it in if you need to as well, through just the way you detail it, the way you make the building function. And if you do that, you can get some more longevity out of the projects too. And that is a key driver for sustainability is make it last and don't have to renovate it or tear it down in a few years. That's really interesting, actually. You never really think about, there's always the devils in the detail. And sometimes that kind of gets lost when it comes to sustainability. And you now, as we said earlier, anytime anybody thinks about sustainability, ESG is like, oh my God, how much is this going to cost me? And I'm not going to do this. And this is just not even a thought process. So I think a lot of people are scared to think about sustainability, really, and right from the very beginning. But I think if you have the right team and the right mindset, and the ability to be able to have that innovation in mind, it's all possible, except it's just that slightly bigger lift, isn't it? Because there's a little bit more thinking involved and planning involved than you would normally have. And people always go through the path of least resistance. Yeah, you yeah. do still get some of that pushback, generally from contractors, not from the developer clients of like, well, that's not how we do it. But a lot of what we integrate for sustainability, especially around materials, is actually simplifying the systems. When I first came over to Canada, I was really pushing the use of rain screen 
cladding systems that are demountable, that the parts are recyclable, and they go up dry, they go up quickly, and they're easy to install. Originally, that got some pushback. It just wasn't something the North American market was used to. And now we're doing huge projects, almost all of our projects with that kind of approach. And it's a built-in sustainability that actually has benefits for construction time and for cost. You've got to find your way around those points of resistance because you're right, people are still scared. Their reaction is like, oh my God, this sounds like expensive. And proving that out is the extra work, but it's worth doing. Yeah, but I think it also comes down to two things in my mind, just adding to your points. One is proof of concept, which if you're starting from nothing, you haven't seen anything in practice, it's very difficult to see how that can actually work until you've seen it, having done things a certain way for I don't know how many years beforehand. And second, which is what we're finding, is that to have a really proper ESG and sustainability informed discussion, there is an element of education, which kind of dovetails into that proof of concept. So learning by doing, and it's kind of a bit of a chicken and egg situation. So just have to kind of get on with it, I suppose, is one of those things and partner with those people who really want to do a pilot where this can be really explored in full. And we're finding that very much to be the case here at Slate. Just moving on a little bit. So the other question I would like to just put to Wes and to Todd is how do you think in your respective role as architects, you are able to borrow from nature to incorporate sustainability principles into your design concepts? And Steve, if you've got a view on this, by all means, feel free to pipe in here. But Todd, why don't you kick off and just get us your thoughts? Sure. Again, in landscape architecture, there's been a long tradition of designing with nature. The nature of the discipline is that we are working with natural things and natural processes. And I think what we've seen lately, which I've found to be a positive thing, is a bit of a shift in an aesthetic choice where we're seeing people kind of embrace the messiness of a naturalized landscape or naturalized planting and environment over, say, like the highly manicured ornamental gardens that maybe were prioritized in the past. And that's been opening up opportunities in landscape for taking advantage of these systems and processes and creating these performative landscapes that can do things for us, like manage stormwater on site or provide habitat or support pollinator species and will evolve over time and kind of grow. And so that kind of borrowing from nature and designing with cycles and natural processes and allowing things to evolve and change and work has been a pretty big trend and good thing in landscape that I've seen. And Wes, I know that Studio Gang has definitely done some projects which have borrowed concepts from nature. Why don't you just kind of walk us through your experiences there and the thought process behind borrowing from nature? Yeah, I think nature is endlessly inspiring for us. We're a group of nature nerds and ecology nerds, and we love to observe and learn from the natural environment, I think in large part because in nature, everything happens for a reason. And so we can observe and learn from the way that living things are responding to their environment and interacting with one another. And that can inform the way we think about design across scales. So at the urban scale, we could consider the form and morphology of a building in response to its environment. How is it interacting with the basic elements of sun and wind and water throughout the year and relating to natural systems of watersheds and shadow and these sorts of things? The structural scale, 
maybe here particularly relevant is material properties and material behaviors, natural materials being a great source of interest right now, looking at wood and mass timber structural systems in particular. How can we implement these types of natural materials in a way that makes use of their strength and their efficiency and their physical properties? And again, these are solutions that are emerging from nature and from the inherent abilities and properties of things created by nature. And then at human scale, we could consider what influences are going to improve the occupant experience from, again, access to light and air and views and healthy outdoor spaces. And the simple act of creating interesting spaces with character that convey a sense of care in their design. And I think all of this is moving towards a general philosophy that we have of thinking about how there is a blending between the natural environment and the environment that humans are creating. And more and more we see that as we urbanize our land and we need to live in more dense arrangements to preserve the resource of outdoor space that we have, we have to think of all of this together as one system. And what about examples? Can you give us some examples of how that nature, architecture, development, intersection comes into play? Because the theory is fascinating, but it's always good to kind of get those live examples. So I don't know whether you've got any examples you can share with us here, because it helps me certainly to kind of imagine how nature actually is being borrowed from. Well, one really simple example is our own studio in Chicago, where we've converted a building. It's an old bank building, Polish Workers Alliance. It was a union for Eastern European immigrants. And we've modified the building into our studio. And on the rooftop, we've added a prairie landscape that has been developing there over the course of, I think, about a decade now. And we treat this like a living laboratory for creating landscape in the urban environment. And so we measure it. We cultivate it and we measure it. One activity that we do every year is called a bio blitz. And we bring ecologists over and staff members join and we go up to the roof and we measure all the different species we can find of, of fungus, of insects, of plants. And we watch year by year as the biodiversity increases. We keep bees up there and we make honey. And so we, we're using this landscape. It's a cultivated natural landscape that is on a building structure. As an example, really plainly, clearly, all of us are seeing and observing is adding biodiversity to an urban center. So we try to bring this ethic of experimentation and testing and exploring through experiment the issues that we're interested in here in our own space. And then through those learnings, we can bring to projects. So that's just one example. What's interesting about that as well is it's actively learning in your environment. And that's something that is so important, especially in places like Chicago or Toronto, where the environment is very extreme, very, very hot in the summer and very, very cold in the winter. So actually having that ability to look at something and see how it works and not just do it and kind of walk away uh, is critical because we still see clients come to us who say, I love this building in LA. Can I do that in Toronto? It's like, no. A big part of learning from nature is learning to not fight against it. Let's figure out what works in our climate, in our location, and do that. And in Toronto, that means less glass, more insulation, having to really work on what happens with the landscape, because it's not just going to grow in the way it does in more kind of tropical areas and deal with the seasons. And you still see a lot of people ignoring that. They're kind of ignoring nature and hoping that they can create a structure or create a landscape that is just going to work anyway because they've seen it in a picture from Florida. That's a big education part for our clients is moving them away from that feeling that they can build an edifice that can defeat what's happening in the natural environment. 
Well, yeah, I mean, this is it, right? You know, when it comes to design and incorporating all of these different sustainability elements, the one thing that I'm hoping for the future is that you don't have cookie cutter cities, which is awful <laughs> in my view. People are used to building buildings, designing them in exactly the same way. This is how we've always done it, as we've said. And then the actual space becomes soulless. There's no character. There's no personality to it. And hopefully borrowing from nature allows us to inject some kind of individuality into buildings rather than everything being samey. And it's quite depressing otherwise, really. It doesn't make cities interesting places to live and work and play, right? So... What you're talking about there is commodification, commodification mm. of architecture into a product, a global product that is without boundaries and is the same wherever we go. And if we think about architecture not as a product, but as a part of a system that is local and that is special to an environment in which it sits, we can move past that. Because I agree with you, it leads to soulless spaces and it affects people. It affects people's feelings about where they live. It affects mental health. It affects one's sense of themselves in the world. And so whatever we can do to kind of root people more deeply in place, I think has great benefits for everybody. I really enjoy the kind of downtown urban, the repositioning projects, because you're forced to deal with what's there and you can't just cookie cutter or commoditize it. You know, the nice thing about Toronto is there's no space downtown left for you to just stick up a generic building. All the sites now are complicated. All the buildings are, are repositioning or tough sites because all of the easy stuff's gone. All the cookie cutter sites have gone. So it makes it a more interesting place to work. And it also allows you to create something that is special for the city and the people who live there. Definitely. Um, I mean, just coming back to Wes's mention of like mental well-being is obviously such a big topic at the moment. And obviously how you live, where you live, how you interact within the environment really has a big bearing on that. And probably that came out really clearly during COVID where having access to open spaces was actually encouraged. You go out and go for a walk, you know, even for your own and just for your mental well-being, which brings me on to the next point of this discussion, just general role of green spaces and biophilic design and how you've seen that promote well-being and connection to environment in urban environments. I mean, have you got any examples or projects that you've worked on where this has really been one of the objectives? Todd? Sure. This kind of touches on something that both Wes and Stephen have already mentioned in that big part of reducing our energy consumption is going to be, you know, living in these urban environments often more densely. And then we are able to use infrastructure more efficiently. So like we don't have to build these new roads and new sewer systems. So then we need spaces for people to play in the city, for people to exist. These spaces, sometimes they are green. And I think those are really important. And other times they're hardscape spaces that people need to gather. People need to have spaces to play and places to relax. So I think we need an infrastructure that supports this kind of dense urban living. The social aspect of ESG is super critical. So in places like Toronto, we've seen our waterfront develop over the last decades. And it's become a very popular place to be and to relax and to exercise and to meet friends and to see people. And I think that's been a big success and it helps support the communities that live nearby. Absolutely. Well, cities is all about community building again. And cities are changing and evolving all the time, just like the natural environment. And so I think that all has to come into play with how those cities are designed for the future, which is 
where you guys come in, right? You've got quite important responsibility on your shoulders. Wow. Come to think of it, actually. The one thing that we haven't really touched on, which I want to come to in the discussion is circularity and embodied carbon, just resource efficiency, challenges around climate change and choice of materials is becoming increasingly important and consideration in any kind of design or redesign project or redesign of buildings. So how are you adapting to integrate circularity principles and sustainable material use in your designs? Steve, over to you. Yeah, it's a great question. And as a bit of context, the concrete industry globally produces about 8% of all carbon emissions and the steel industry produces about 10%. So when you combine that, just those two construction materials create 10 times more carbon than the entire airline industry. But people get all kind of weird about flying on planes and they just completely ignore the carbon in building materials because it's more difficult to understand. And that's given architects and designers a bit of a free ride for the last kind of 20 years. And I think that free ride is over now. We have to really focus on the embodied carbon. And you're starting to see that happen in Europe and in the UK, where you're basically incentivized to never demolish anything. And that will kind of trickle over to North America in the next few years, I think. But it has a huge impact. And we're doing a lot of repositioning right now. I've been focusing the last four or five years on adaptive reuse of buildings, converting disused office spaces into residential, into data centers, into storage and whatever, just reusing that existing concrete. And a lot of the times what that requires is you to go in and really think about what the original architect did 40, 50 years ago, what they were trying to achieve and how you can understand that and peel it away to get the best use out of it. So that idea of highest and best use is is critical for existing buildings. And then really thinking about how you approach it and how much work you really do. How much work do you need to do to give the space a new use? I have a designer I work with a lot in our office who always says the best project is no project, which like really annoys everyone, especially annoys our clients. But it's really true. Like Every time we do something, we sit there and we think, do we need to do this? Do I need to demolish that thing? Do I need to change that? And what is the impact of that? And if you can't justify it, we don't do it. And that, like coming back to one of the earlier questions, actually really helps from a financial point of view on a project as well. We're not just getting rid of stuff for the sake of it. We're really considering it. And I think that is what drives our ability to reduce embodied carbon. Again, especially in cities that are already dense that need to make better use of their adding density or increasing the the viability of existing building products. And it's literally millions of kilograms of CO2 per building. One of the buildings we're doing with Slate right now is repositioning and densifying a 12-story office building. That building represents about 3 million kilograms of carbon just in the existing structure, ignoring everything else, ignoring the glazing, everything, just the steel and concrete. So that in itself, if I save that building, if I can help keep that building in place, that offsets all of the carbon I've ever generated in my life. So it's a really significant amount every time you do a project. That's really interesting. The one thing that I've always wondered about is to your point about the embodied carbon, obviously the best thing to do when it comes to carbon and buildings is don't build from scratch, try and retain what there is. And that is the best way to reduce the carbon footprint of a building. 
In terms of choice of materials, so you've mentioned steel, clearly a lot of carbon embodied in that material. What about materials such as laminated timber? I think there's some perhaps old school thinking there. I don't know whether it's old school, whether yeah. it can be justified that you can't use timber, it's got limitations. I'm sure there's things like building regulations that perhaps are not moving fast enough with emerging technologies and sustainable materials. What about those kind of materials and how those are starting to be adopted? Now, I want to put that to you, Steve, as well, and also to Wes. Yeah, maybe I'll start. The work we've been doing in mass timber, my first project out of architecture school was a mass timber project in England. And I came over to North America and no one was doing it, which was kind of a weird thing. So we actually started working with Google and their Sidewalk Labs team six or seven years ago now to develop an approach to mass timber, which made it not special anymore. That was the key strategy. All of the mass timber projects you see, especially in North America and Europe too, it's like an airport or a museum or a whatever. The really expensive projects are generally low rise and the timber piece was seen as special. Our approach was let's make it not special. I want to go into a client and mass timber be the baseline for every project that we're looking at. And then you have to convince me out of that being the standard. And that took a lot of work. We were getting there with the projects that we're designing now, but to have mass timber be the first choice and not the special choice. So give me a reason why I can't do this six-story office building or this 12-story residential building in timber and take away that specialness of it. And we get some pushback on that, but you can start to make the structure really efficient, start to reduce the number of pieces, and that's a key thing, like reducing the piece count, speeding up the production and the repeatability. And then you can get to the point where the first choice is timber, the cheapest choice is timber. And I think we'll see that continue to evolve. There'll be more and more non-special timber projects. During that work, we designed a 35-story timber residential tower on the waterfront as a kind of proof of concept. And it works. And it works from a building code point of view. It works from a sustainability and cost point of view. But you're right, the building departments haven't necessarily caught up. And this is particularly true in the, the UK, where after some facade fire incidents, they didn't ban the facade panel materials. They banned mass timber. It was like very bizarre. But we are seeing movement on that again. And I think you'll start to see pretty regularly 20 to 30 story mass timber towers going up across the world, honestly. And that's where we need to be. Like that has a huge carbon offset. It also promotes sustainable forestry, which helps with reducing forest fires and all that kind of stuff. So there's huge benefits there if we can make it the norm. Yeah. What's your experience, Wes? Well, I think it's a great part of the strategy to reducing embodied carbon in building construction. It's not the only answer. It can't be the only answer. I think if we look at regions in the world, like the global south, where we still see a vast predominance of concrete used in construction, we have a pressing need to address the chemistry of concrete and to get at lower embodied carbon concrete mixes that's another part of the strategy. And I think it's great that there's so much interest in timber right now and there's so much innovation happening in timber, but it is not the best thing for everything. And so I think using it in the right moments in the right ways and innovating it to have more broad applications is great. Hand in hand with looking at forests, as Stephen was mentioning, it needs to be grown, it takes up land. And so the whole kind of ecosystem of that product needs to be taken into consideration when we think about it. 
as with any material. But I think there's a lot of interesting work going on now also with hybridization of materials. So for example, we're doing a project in California that's a residential building that has a steel post and beam primary structure and CLT decking that's replacing steel deck and concrete slab. And so there are ways of using the material in a more selective, more surgical way for projects where that may be appropriate. And I think that's really also great. So there's different ways to to slip this material into the construction that we're doing. And I think we try to be really open to how it can be deployed in different ways and not insisting on a kind of total timber world. I'm loving the energy around timber and loving the interest in it. And it does bring a lot of beauty to projects. People really enjoy being in spaces with that material. And it also, we're speaking about being inspired by nature. It's inspiring that this material develops its own fire protection. So if it is burning, it develops a char around it, which is part of its own biological process that protects it from fire. So we can engineer it to develop that char layer and still, once it gets charred and is protecting itself from further damage is still a viable structural member and will be safe to inhabit the building for some time. So a lot of interesting and innovative work around that right now. And I look forward to seeing more of that. Wes is right. There's no such thing as a pure timber building. No one's building a timber foundation. So we do have to fix the concrete problem as well. We have to fix the steel problem. But they're really big challenges. If you look at what's happened with the steel industry in North America, there's been a push towards using arc furnaces, which electrically generated you know, steel production that made it expensive to the point where basically all steel production got offshored to places that don't have those requirements. We're seeing the same to some degree with concrete production as well. So we can't forget about those products in a rush to be excited about the timber piece. We do have to figure out a real way of dealing with them as well. Yeah, but there's also other considerations too, to bear in mind. I was listening to what you were saying. If we were to make it a normal, is there enough forest and timber in the world if everybody were to suddenly have a night turn into timber frame construction? That's another consideration. And what are the biodiversity and implications around that? You can't have monoculture forest that doesn't add to biodiversity. So just goes to show how complex the whole sustainability dilemma is. And there's always a knock-on impact with everything that you're doing. And I was just curious to know whether you've got any insights to this, but with the use of new materials like timber frame and the new construction methods that and materials that you mentioned, Wes, how are, for example, insurers and financing and credit lenders rather thinking about this? You know, is this, oh, this is unproven. We don't know how to insure this. We don't know how this is going to perform, what the risk is. Is that a consideration? Is that a potential hurdle to get over with the insurers and the lenders for these kind of projects? Uh, You may be venturing a little bit out of my area of expertise here, but I think it starts with the building codes. So if we can, through a process of testing and standardized understanding of how different materials behave in different situations and different problems that a building can have, fire being one of them, earthquake being another, there's a process for understanding these behaviors, for documenting these behaviors, and for standardizing them into building codes that govern all the decisions that we as architects, as well as all the engineers we work with and so forth, need to abide by when we're going to get a building permit. And so for me, it all starts there. If we're able to achieve testing and demonstrate that these materials are viable and have that recognized in the building codes, then I think we're on the path to having 
insurers and financiers recognize that in the economy of the buildings and in the risk assessment of the buildings. I think the insurers are definitely a little far behind. What we're seeing in the financing market at the moment is that a lot of the big lenders, the kind of really large multinational institutional lenders, are looking at particularly office space, and they're looking at the amount of companies that have said that they will be net zero by 2050. And they're saying, where are those companies going? And Gans is a good example. All of our offices have to be net zero by 2030. So we can't stay in this building unless this building gets upgraded. So what does that mean if all of the top companies are going to have to move out of their existing carbon intensive office spaces? It means that those buildings are going to have zero value. And the ones that are net zero, that are mass timber or, or whatever, will have an increased value. And lenders are starting to see that. And they're starting to be really worried about investing in non-net zero buildings. Because what does it mean if we all decide to move out and we all decide that we're going to pay a premium for a net zero office? Well, it means that a lot of buildings are going to be worthless. So I think the lender market is getting there, the sophisticated ones at least. The insurance market is, by definition, conservative and is definitely not there yet. It definitely hasn't caught up. Yeah, I mean, I guess from the discussions I'm having with the various stakeholders, lenders, insurers, borrowers, brokers, there's a consistency in what we're hearing in that, yes, there's a growing focus on climate change. The different stakeholders are at different stages of where they are at. But what I heard just the other day, actually, was that when it comes to like decarbonization strategies for properties, which are existing buildings, maybe old, they have to be retrofitted, which costs a lot of money. But what I've heard, which was really interesting, I've never heard this before, is that now there is a preference for a building to be net zero to have it, then have a green building certification from yeah. some. So this very much kind of tallies up with what you're hearing as well. So that can only just go in one direction, in my view, in terms of how things are progressing. So we're coming up to the end of our session. So what I'm going to do is pose the same question to all three of you to kind of close out. Looking ahead into the future with your respective hats on, expertise, focus, what are the next big things that we need to be thinking about either from an opportunistic or from a risk perspective. Todd, why don't you kick off? Sure. I think from the landscape world, a trend that I see is increasing embracing of adaptive management sort of approach to managing landscapes. So that ties in with that embracing of maybe the messiness of these natural plant communities where the maintenance regime will be to tend a process and to keep the landscape functioning as opposed to trimming it and making sure everything looks just so. And that's a trend that we want to embrace and we would like to see become more popular. And then I'll also say, I think using vertical architecture as a way to get green infrastructure into cities. We have a lot of space on top of roofs and we've been putting green roofs on top of buildings for a long time now. And I think the technology is always improving and we're seeing increased kind of building benefits from those green roofs. And then things like green walls and maybe seeing how these can tie into the systems of a building is also a pretty exciting, exciting thing for us. What I think is going to be really interesting over, the, I think, the next five years is that if you don't know how to design or aren't designing net zero passive house buildings, then you won't be designing anything. And as we move towards stricter goals and 
both from cities and from our clients as well. I really think that the standard in five years' time will be net zero. There won't be any option. It won't be a debate. It'll have to be that because we're really running out of time. And if we don't get real about it, we'll start losing business. So I think that's the not even a trend necessarily. I think that's my hope. And I think we're going to be pushed there, or I hope we're going to be pushed to doing that as well. Yeah, I would agree with that, actually. I think we don't even have five years now. We should be doing it today. That's the thing. 2030 is not that long away, and 2050 is not that long away in the grand scheme of things in terms of how the Titanic needs to turn to kind of change the trajectory. So in development, 2030 is now. Right. Yeah. If I design a building okay. today, it's going to take two years to get approved and a couple of years to build. And then by the time it's occupied, it's 2030. So it's today. But I don't think people are caught up to that. So I hope over the next few years, people will catch up. And in five years, it will be no choice. Wes, what about your final closing words? We talked a lot about building reuse. We have a mantra in our firm, start with what's there. So thinking about the built environment as something to be developed with and not replacing what's there, but working with what's there is fundamental. And we've talked about that a lot. But I do think when we add new buildings, also, we need to think about what is their capacity to be reused in the future. We need to be thinking really hard about doing giant four plate office buildings if there's no other use that can be sustained in those buildings. And we have another pandemic. And what do we do with all the space? So when we're looking at new buildings, we're testing out different programs and we're thinking about what might these buildings become in the future and what kind of strategies might we deploy, for example, how services are routed through the building that would allow those to be upgraded and replaced so that things can be accessed. And these are all adding to the building's resilience. These are all adding to its future utility. Even with new buildings, is my point, we can be working towards a future where Things are almost more like infrastructure that can be adapted to meet changing needs of our cities so that our cities can continue to be places that thrive in response to challenges that we don't even know what they are yet. So I think it's that kind of strategic design that I think will be an important part of the equation moving forward. Well, that is a great note on which to end. So to all of you, Stephen, Todd, Wes, thank you so much for giving up your time to join us on this second episode of Slated to Discuss. I really enjoyed the discussion. You guys are shaping the future of the built environment. So just keep up the good work because it's such an important role that you're playing in terms of making sure that we in the cities remain, well, adequate for the future as to where we're heading. So thanks again to all of you and over and out. You've been listening to Slated to Discuss, hosted by Slate Asset Management. Slate Asset Management is a global alternative investment platform targeting real assets. We are creatives, collaborators, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are looking to make a difference in the communities in which we invest. To learn more about Slate, explore our firm's real estate infrastructure and securities capabilities, and connect with us further to discuss any of the topics we touch on in our podcast, head over to slateam.com. We'll see you next time on Slated to Discuss.